Okay. Now, last week, we had an opportunity to look at um, how very intentional Churches of Christ are about their buildings and about the semantics around the buildings. And I don't know about you, but my, uh, my very first experience of worship was in Churches of Christ in a Payton Brother building. And we looked at Payton Brother buildings. Um, they had the A-frame with the horizontal wings. When you walk in, everything was arranged theologically. So you had the center aisle that led to the centrality of baptism at the very front. Um, just beneath that was the proclamation of the word by the pulpit. And just in front of that, on the floor, was the Lord's Supper table to help us understand uh, visually as, and experientially that worship was for all baptized male believers, okay? Uh, you didn't have to be um, a part of a priesthood to be able to offer the Lord's Supper. And so these elements were very central to the core of our understanding of who we were as, uh, uh, as Christians. So today I want to talk about the temple because I want us to, okay, why is it not, there we go, I want us to go back to the very, very beginnings of Christianity, that very first church in Jerusalem, and I want us to think about what it was like for them, because the temple was not only the place of worship, but it had been designed very carefully by God. Solomon's temple, if you remember, was decked out with precious woods, precious uh, gold, silver, bronze. Uh, there was no expense spared by Solomon to create the most beautiful of textiles in rich and regal colors of red and blue and purple <coughs> with gold filaments in the, in the fabric. Uh, even the objects that were used in, the, in, the, in worship were made of gold and silver. And so it's very uh, precious, but it was also God-ordained. Now the second temple, that first temple, was completely raised by the Babylonians when they went into captivity. And in, it threw the nation of Israel into a real theological crisis. Um, they had always thought that God um, loved them because they had the land of Israel. They had the Levitical rule, uh, not rule, but Levitical, um, what am I looking for? Priesthood, the, the Levitical priesthood. Um, they had the temple for all of their places of... Uh, uh, sacrifices, and they had the Davidical line of succession to the throne. Now, all of that is in question. The Davidical line is snuffed out by the Babylonians. Um, the Levitical priesthood, if you can't have a temple, then how can you have Levites 
to, to offer the sacrifices. So all of that was swept away. And the fact that the land that God had given them was now no longer theirs was a deep theological crisis. In its wake, the law became all important. And so synagogues as places of worship and community became essential to the foundation of the Jewish experience in captivity. Well, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came along and he had a heart for his cupbearer, Ezra. And Ezra told him one day why he was so upset and crying. And it was because he had heard that there was no more temple. So Cyrus interceded and said, you know what? I'll give you all the resources. I'll give you all the time you need. And I will uh, let you go back and rebuild the temple. So he did. Um, it was 90 feet shorter um, than the one that Solomon had been able to build, and it was very modest by comparison. So when they dedicated the temple, those of the people who were old and could remember the first temple cried. But the young people who had never known the first temple, they were rejoicing and laughing. Centuries later, um, a, man, a man named Herod marries into the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, and so when he, is, uh, when he comes to power, because of the Romans, um, the, the um, I'm reading off script now. <laughs> um, <coughs> the, um, I'm sorry, Hasmonean, okay. So he was established by uh, Rome and, uh, and influenced very much by the architecture of Rome. And one of the things we know of Herod the Great is that he was a great builder. Do you remember some of the building projects that he did besides the temple? Steve, you've been at some of those. Uh, he built the palace at Masada, uh -huh. which he never went to. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, he, right outside the city of Jerusalem is the Herodian, mm -hmm. the whole Remains? The, the mount where he had, where he, that he built the city. Uh -huh. And at Caesarea, uh -huh. Uh -huh. It, it, uh, you can, it's almost as if it's a modern house, almost, you have the coastline, the rocks and everything, and he had built out onto a peninsula, out into the sea. And he had, as the tides would come in, they would build up the pools. And it, was supposed, it was probably the ultimate contemporary house of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can still see the foundation. Mm -hmm. He built aqueducts as well. He built, um, uh, he built Caesarea uh, Maritima. Um, there were so many palaces that he built that, that uh, he's, that it's almost impossible to keep up with them. In fact, there's some conjecture that Jesus, as a carpenter, was hired 
to um, to build help build one of the the palaces in the the area just below Galilee. Sephora. Say it again. Sephora. I can't remember the name of it. We'll go with yours, Steve. Sephora. <laughs> so he was an amazing builder. Um, so one of the things that he did as the king of the Jews, so proclaimed by the Romans, was to build um, build upon what was started by the second temple. Now, he, he did it over and beyond what we could have even imagined. And it's really sad in some ways that we don't have it to look at anymore. On the other hand, it was an edifice built to the glory of the living God. And after all, that's what God said he wanted to do, was to live with his people. So the glory of God is no longer, um, well, it never has been limited to a building. It lives now in those of us, as Paul would say, who are the temple of God. And so if we can imagine what the temple meant to the people of the time, then I think it will be instructive to us, not only about the glory of the living God, but it will also lay a foundation for us to think about what it was like to separate yourselves from temple worship and become God's temple, okay? So let's look at the religious, historical, and the political context. Solomon's Temple, uh, I'm sorry, not Solomon's Temple. Um, Okay, so one of the two pillars of the post-exilic quest for holiness was that the temple was the place for the abiding presence of God and the only place where atonement for sin could be made. Of course, Jesus fulfilled this by becoming the atonement for sin. Uh, In its political context, it embodied the ideology of divine protection. According to rabbinic tradition, threats of violence against the temple warranted capital punishment. So even though Jesus was speaking of his body when he said, tear down this temple and and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's kind of like an episode of Frasier. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, they have one conversation that means one thing, but taken out of context and heard by someone else that doesn't know the context, it means something entirely different. So everyone that heard him say that, they're looking at the massive, massive complex, which is the temple, and they're going, you can, you can tear that down and rebuild it in three days? Okay, that was just the most ridiculous thing that they'd ever heard of, and also threatening. Okay, and in a minute, we're going to talk about why it was so ridiculous to think that he could do it in three days. Um, Paradoxically, it became the focal point of liberation hope. So Josephus records 
that it became a zealot stronghold during the first revolt against Rome just before Rome just demolished it. It also served as a bank under the Maccabees. And that's not too uncommon in that uh, Greco-Roman world because even the, um, the idolatrous temples to Athena or Zeus, Apollo, etc., those were also used as a treasury. And you probably remember that when you f took your first tour of the Parthenon and they showed you the area just behind Athena that that was used as sort of a vault for, for treasures. Um, so since Herod was known for his uh, building projects, it, it's important to know that he was very influenced by Greco-Roman architecture and design. So my guess is that the Temple Mount that he built up was probably infused with a lot of Greco-Roman styles. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, he began building about the year that Jesus' mother, Mary, was born, in about 19 to 20 BC. Uh, th that was during the 18th year of his reign. And he was declared the Roman proxy, the king of the Jews, by the Roman Senate and he began renovation on the plateau, expanding it to its current size and renovating the temple. Now, the temple mount itself had a little bit of a rise to it. So he planed that off and then built out and created these enormous retaining walls so that it was a it was it had four squares. It wasn't amorphous, okay? And um, the, um, and I'm going to show you some pictures of that. Okay. Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the Roman Empire when he started the temple. And it was still considered the second temple because the sacrifices continued and never stopped during construction which is pretty amazing, don't you think? Um, being a designer and seeing the mess that's made <laughs> when you construct, um, I, I'm a little bit awed by that. There were 10,000 skilled workers and laborers, according to Josephus. The laity could not enter certain parts of the building, so they took 1,000 Levites and um, specially trained them as builders and his masons, stonemasons, and carried out their work so efficiently and so carefully that at no time there was any interruption in the services or the sacrifices. And that, would, that speaks a lot because there are so many Jewish festivals, okay? <laughs> um, the work was started by leveling the larger portions of the Temple Mount and um, that way the new building could be erected on a broader base. It was also much taller than Solomon's um, so that the white stone gleamed in the bright Palestinian sun and could be seen from miles away. When Jesus was presented at temple, when he was bar, mitzv bar mitzvah, um, Herod had been constructing for 14 years. Okay. 
and it gets better. <laughs> when Jesus was 12, Herod died, uh, but the construction continued under his son, Herod Antipas. And during the first Passover of Jesus's ministry, the construction had been going for 46 years. So it's no wonder that the disciples were wowed by the scale of the building and the scale of the stones themselves. And when you go, how many of you have been? Oh, good. Okay, so were you wowed by the size of the, the stones? Steve, did they take you in that tunnel and show you? Yeah. <sighs> the, uh, give you an idea. That wall right there mm -hmm. behind you mm -hmm. would be a typical block. And it's got like a little margin all the way around. Yes. Be. Now, the interesting thing about that's the retaining wall. Yeah. Before you even get up. And so that was built that wall, that wall was put together. Uh -huh. You can't put your hand in there. They cut them so, so fine. Tight. The other interesting thing, now I won't talk too much, okay. but uh, they did not build it on site. They went to the quarry, cut, cut them because they weren't allowed to build up on the Temple Mount. So they took mm -hmm. them from some other place, moved these these, these, these retaining wall stones about that size to, it started out at seven, uh, it was like seven acres was where Solomon, this comes 30, it's a plateau, and it expanded to like 13 acres. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now to make it even more special, the exterior was sheathed in gold. So Josephus wrote, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. So I calculated a cubit at a, it, as a foot. 85 feet long <laughs> by 24 feet, I'm sorry, 82.5 feet high, um, no, long, and 24 inch, uh, feet high. I mean, we're talking massive, massive. And you can't see them when you go there. You have to go underground to be able to see those. So when you come into the city today, um, we're standing at the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're looking out over the Yohan uh, Valley, and this wall, this retaining wall, is part of the edge of the uh, Temple Mount, 
and it's impossible to see how big it is because it extends even outside my field of vision and it goes all the way to the edge of those trees and right now the Dome of the Rock which is a Muslim site um, sits where the temple would have would have been and when you walk into the city it's the show stopper of the city so if you can imagine Solomon's Temple or Herod's Temple, it would really be a showstopper. Now, to get a sense of scale of how important the temple was to their psyche, to their sense of place, and to the sense of spiritual importance, this is the um, original, like, first century Jerusalem. Look how big the Temple Mount is in proportional relationship to the rest of the city. Is that is that surprising? I thought it, I thought it was too. I mean, I found also interesting that yellow portion. Yes. That was the original. That was the city of David. Yeah. Yeah. I loved being in the city of David. It was really interesting. Okay, so, and I said, and I'm, I meant Kidron Valley. The uh, Garden of Gethsemane is over here on the other side. Yeah. To the right of the Temple Mount, that's the Kidron Valley. Yes. Down, then up, over to Gethsemane, and, and, and uh, right. And there's also like that. Uh, there's also a valley that's been filled in on the opposite side mm -hmm. called the Chief, the, the Valley of the Chief. And it was came down Temple Mount, Kidron Valley. Now, they had, in the valley on the other side, they built a bridge from the city, mm -hmm. goes across the valley, straight into the temple. Yeah. Well, now you don't see it. Because right, it's gone. Yeah, fill in with right. all the debris and everything. Right. That's they dug along the way, uh, the, the western wall. Yes. Through that valley. Yes. Through the tunnel and see, see the side of the temple. Yes, and I've got a picture of it, so you'll be able to point. <laughs> okay, so here is Herod's temple, and this is an artist rendering, but it helps you kind of understand where things were in connection to each other. So there is a golden gate that I'm going to describe in a few minutes um, that came up from the valley. And um, the description of it is stunning. And this is a court of the Gentiles. These walls were partitioning walls um, with inscriptions that said, if you're a Gentile, you cannot go any further on penalty of death, basically. Um, the court of Gentiles is also on flanks on the other side, and once again, you see the barriers. And I'm going to show you examples of those that are still uh, available to us. Um, the, these porticos 
were places where the young church met. Okay, and so when we picture Peter and Paul doing some of their miracles, uh, Peter doing some of his miracles at the very beginning of the church, this is the location of where it would have been. Um, Solomon's portico, which runs this way, is where Jesus was engaged with the scribes and the teachers of the law when he was 12 years old. So he would have been right in here. And um, the Antonia Fortress, which I'm going to show you uh, a scale model of, was where the Romans could overlook what was going on and make sure that there weren't any disturbances on the Temple Mount. Now the thing that shocked me the most when we got to the what we know as the Temple Mount, what now is now known as Dome of the Rock, was how enormous this place was. You can fit hundreds of thousands of people in its plain, not not thousands of people, like hundreds of thousands of people could fit. And that was that took my breath away. These are the 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 stones that the disciples were so incredibly overcome by. Um, I'm going to read what the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Herod transformed the second temple into an edifice of splendor and surrounded the Temple Mount on its four sides with massive retaining walls. The walls founded on bedrock were built of large ashlar stones with beautifully dressed margins. This is what Steve was talking about. You can tell a Herodian stone from maybe someone else's because these were planed off um, what we call dressed. These were dressed stones. And each course was set back about two to three centimeters from the, the rock below it. So here's the edge of the lower one, and you can see that two to three centimeters, this one is set back. So it allowed for the walls not to implode, but to stand straight, okay? At, um, the stones weigh some five tons each. The corner blocks tens of thousands. So um, I've watched, uh, there's a, a Netflix where um, it's a royal tour of Israel, and if you want to see it, it's on Netflix. And Menachem Begin, not Menachem Begin, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, who's the Prime Minister of Israel, took this correspondent on a tour, and he literally walks the length of one of those uh, uh, blocks, and so I w I'm hoping to learn how to excise that so that I can share it with you first thing on Sunday, because it's really very interesting. Okay, so um, the work was actually finally concluded in 63 A.D. 
So this was seven years before it was destroyed by Titus, who is soon to be emperor of Rome. And what Jesus predicted came true. Not one stone was left standing on another. Um, from the times of King Solomon to the return of the Babylonian exile, and then the Hasmoninian period, which was the 10th to the 1st century. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem was a relatively small platform built on the top of Mount Moriah. This is very possibly the Mount Moriah that we're told that Abram sacrificed Isaac on. Okay, so that, that's where it gets its uh, emotional and spiritual significance. And at its highest point, the stone of the foundation, which was, this was the site of the temple. King Herod's greatest building project was to double the area of the Temple Mount by incorporating part of the hill to the northwest, which had to be leveled, and on which he built the Antonio Fortress, and by filling up parts of the surrounding valleys. Herod transformed the second temple into an edifice of splendor and surrounded the Temple Mount on its four sides with massive retaining walls. Um, these were founded on bedrock. They were built of large ashlar stones with these margins, dress margins. So um, from the time that it was demolished by Titus, which if you think about it, it would be almost as inconceivable to the Israelis of the day that that could be destroyed, as it is inconceivable that the Twin Towers could be destroyed on 9-11. Just inconceivable. Uh, so when the Israeli tanks rumbled into Jerusalem, in Jerusalem's old city in 1967, it was the first time, except in a brief moment in 135 AD, that the Jews actually had access to the Temple Mount. It's a long time. So, um, oh, I forgot I put this in there. This is our tour guide in motion. <laughs> and he's showing um, how Herod had planed it off, built these high retaining walls so it came up off of the mountain and made it flat and put the temple there. And he's showing the difference in scale of the scale of the the um, of the temple to the scale of the Dome of the Rock. Now, I don't know. He was very Jewish. I don't know if this was um, propaganda or not. I really don't know. Um, the Jewish people are still not allowed. To visit unless you're under guard. Um, so uh, those those of you who, that go, you'll need to go between uh, 7.30 and 10 o'clock in the morning. That's the only time Christians are allowed on the mount. Um, but since they have all kinds of different tour groups that are not led exclusively by Jewish people, um, like our Jewish guide could not go with us, so we had it, this was a something that we had to do on our own. But he was able to show us this model, and so um, 
I'm, I'm thinking that it may be true to scale because there are so many different kinds of groups that do visit the Temple Mount, including Muslims. Okay. Um, now, the Western Wailing Wall is the only part that remains above ground the, of the original temple. And in the upper, um, the upper image shows the wailing walls and the blocks that were above ground. And then you see this arch, a very slight arch. Uh, this is a model, a three-quarters inch model. It's very pixelated, so I apologize for that. But this is where the temple would have stood. And this arch is the one that you're seeing here. And as Steve mentioned, they put all kinds of debris here. And so the actual welling wall that we see that's so tall is actually only this little tiny portion, if that helps to see. So even when you're there and it feels so large, if you can imagine that's only a little, little eyelash compared to the massive size of everything else. Now, one of the other things that Steve mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, um, the, when you go to the mount to worship, you always ascend it. You always ascend it. Not, not just the stairs to the Temple Mount, but to get there, either your horse or, or on foot or a mule, you literally rose up because it is, uh, well, now Dale with Wilter would fight me on this because he thinks this is not a mountain. <laughs> I mean, we've got the Rockies for heaven's sakes. Mm -hmm. So uh, if, you're, if you're going with um, American eyes, this might not feel like a mountain until you walk it. And then it very much feels like it's a mountain. Um, but then you would ascend these stairs uh, on the west side. On the east side, you had the Golden Gate that you would ascend up to. And um, now uh, this has been eradicated. And so here's, here's the Temple Mount um, on my left. On the right, this is what it looks like, and there is a, the Muslims have um, created a ramp that looks very temporary, um, and you can ascend into that wall, uh, that doorway, and then you go into the Temple Mount. So that kind of gives you an idea of what it looks like today. And you can tell by this Jewish man that this is a very happening place. There are all kinds of men and women that are coming to pray at the Western Wall, and um, they are separated by sexes. So the men are off to the left, and the women have a smaller courtyard off to the right. Now, what I think is interesting, this is Rome. Um, this is the Arch of Titus, which celebrated his victory over the Jewish nation and the demolishing of the temple. And you can see that the, uh, the golden candlesticks and some instruments of worship were taken off to Rome and have never been seen again.
Okay. Um, so from, I w just, this is another slide that I just wanted to share with you for the sense of scale. <laughs> I have to test this. Um, once again, <clears throat> here's the courtyard, the Wailing Wall, and you see the very tippity top of the, of the arches. Um, here is the men's section of the Wailing Wall and the female section of the Wailing Wall. And so, and here, of course, is the Temple Mount itself. And it's green and lush on that side and green and lush on the other side as well. Anybody have any questions about scale? All right. <coughs> the gate opening into the building, which is this section right here, on the, this is on the east side. You would travel, traverse up this ramp into this doorway, and in between these two columns, right in this section, um, it was completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, uh, above it those gold vines, from which hung grape clusters as tall as a man, and had golden doors, 55 cubits high and 16 abroad. That was from Josephus. Okay, so when we picture the early church, we're going to picture them over on this side of the portico. Um, obviously, the only people that were able to go into the Holy of Holies were the Levitical priests, but there was an area as you walked beside, if, if you were a female, the little court for, for women was only 200 square feet. So that was like maybe a 10 by 20. <laughs> so smaller than this room, basically. So, um, or maybe about the size of this room. Um, but you could see the basin from there, and then you could see the altar beyond it. But no one could enter into the Holy of Holies, and of course it was overlaid in gold and um, precious materials. Now the only way we know an artistic um, impression was from the... Um, the coin, the Barcopa coin that we found, and it has Doric columns, not, uh, here you're seeing uh, Corinthian columns, here you're seeing Doric columns from the Greco-Roman uh, vernacular, and you can see the door and then the area in between it. Okay. Now, looming above on this side of the, the mount is the Antonia Fortress. So do you feel like uh, during the time of Jesus, would it be very oppressive thinking that the, the Romans are always examine you as you bring your, your worship and your uh, sacrifices to God? Did they build that? Herod, Herod actually built it for the Romans, because after all, they were empowering him. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I, these three entrances were the courts. There were two courts 
for um, like business problems or issues and there was one for spiritual issues and that was on the other side of the court and these stones have um, as you can see they have um, Hebrew written on it this is this is as far as the Jewish the Gentile people can come <clears throat> I just keep coming back that so next week I want to lay this is just laying the architectural foundation I want to make some extrapolations about theology next week we're going to talk about what it was like for the first century church to go from this model to the home model of worship and some of the ramifications theologically of making that move okay so this week be thinking about how would you th what would you think about God which is what we're talking about when we say theology what what how we talk about God with this model and then we're going to build on that next week okay thank you so much for being here today did everyone get to sign up their email? Oh, you didn't see. Oh. Yeah, I can do that if you'd like. Okay. Tell you what, if you would, if you'd like to get an email, can I get this to you? Let you pass mail. Thank you for you to email us your notes and things. Mm -hmm. um.